In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In college, I attended a midweek Eucharist at the Episcopal Church in town. And as a rule, it was sparsely attended. It was often just the priest, me, and a handful of others, maybe five on a big day, sometimes just two or three. Today is the fourth Sunday of Lent. Lent is the 40-day season leading up to Easter. When did this season begin? Ash Wednesday. When will it conclude? On Easter. And it is a season of the church year where we are invited, to use the words of the Book of Common Prayer, to make time for self-examination, prayer, fasting, and self-denial. It's also a season for, and this is something we've been stressing at at St. John's this Lent, reading and meditating on God's holy word. In today's Old Testament lesson from 1 Samuel, we encounter the prophet Samuel, directed by the Spirit to anoint Jesse's youngest son David as king of Israel. Now, in the culture of the time, all the prerogatives of any family would always go to the eldest son. So, this little vignette from 1 Samuel is a reversal of the expected social order. And God has a habit of doing this all throughout the scriptures, of reversing social expectations. And throughout history, God continues to do that. And this passage also contains a very memorable verse, memorized by many across the world, that contains an important spiritual principle. Are you familiar with this principle? Mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Even more memorable to many people over the ages is a selection from the psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice the connection, if you haven't already, between the psalm and the passage from 1 Samuel. Psalm 23 describes the Lord as what? A shepherd. And 1 Samuel describes David as a what? Shepherd boy. The lectionary scholars are at work again trying to help us notice connections between the different passages. In a somewhat brief lesson from the New Testament letter of the Ephesians, St. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus, Greece, of this. Once you were in darkness, but now the Lord, you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And finally, in the longer-than-normal lesson from our own St. John, we hear about the intrigue. Did you pick up on this? The intrigue behind a healing that Jesus performed. The Pharisees are suspicious of Jesus to begin with, and this healing that he does on a Sabbath day gives them good excuse to bring in someone who they hope will help them get Jesus into trouble. So they bring in the blind man's parents, the formerly blind man's parents, And then they bring in the blind man himself for interrogation. Did you catch the irony in this passage? Did you catch the irony? The man who was formerly physically blind sees Jesus for who he truly is. While the Pharisees, 
who should see things spiritually clearly and claim to do so, are blind to who Jesus truly is. Notice also the connections between seeing in the gospel and the themes of light and darkness in the letter to the Ephesians. Once again, the lectionary committee, the people who put together the cycle of Sunday readings, are trying to tell us something. Have you noticed that we celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday? I imagine you've probably noticed that. The Catechism, which is in the back of that red book, the Catechism of the Book of Common Prayer, recognizes several names for this central sacrament of the Christian faith. Quote, The Holy Eucharist is called the Lord's Supper and Holy Communion. It is also known as the Divine Liturgy, the Mass, and the Great Offering. The Holy Eucharist is also called the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, Divine Liturgy, Mass, Great Offering. End of quote. So depending on your background, your familiarity with different kinds of Christian churches, your experience with them, some of those terms will be more familiar to you than others. Mass is not an exclusively Roman Catholic term. There are many Episcopal churches that use that term for the celebration of communion, as some people do here at St. John's. And you know that the vast majority of Christian churches all around the world celebrate communion every week. Did you know that? Vast majority. Right now, that's what most Christians on Sunday are doing. They're in worship. They're celebrating the communion, the Mass, the Divine Liturgy, the Lord's Supper. However, there is a large, a large minority of Christians who do not celebrate communion every week. These churches stress the pulpit over the altar. If you think that through, you make lots of connections. Those churches stress the pulpit over the altar. Now I want you to look around. So look up, look around. Look around the church here. What do you notice architecturally? What has the most central prominence? Does the, does the pulpit have a place of prominence? Does it have a place of prominence? Well, it has a place of prominence. It's high up. And when I use the pulpit like I am during Lent, I can look down upon you. Not, you know, morally. No, the pulpit, while it does have a place of prominence, is secondary. The central place of prominence in the church's architecture is the altar or the holy table. The altar which represents the presence of God. The altar which represents the place where humanity and divinity meet. Since I'm almost the beginning of the human experiment or the human creation, ever since humans have been around, humans have erected altars. And altars have been used for sacrifice. Even human sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, animal sacrifice was part of the worship of the people of Israel. You would take the blood, and this is described in the Old Testament, and it would be sprinkled on the altar for the forgiveness of human sins. Jesus, on his sacrifice on the altar of the cross, ended the need for all such sacrifices. A sacrifice which the Book of Common Prayer tells us, quote, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. End of quote. Now here's a secret about the Eucharist you might not know. 
You may have been coming to the church for many, many years. But at every Eucharist, you and I are invited not to make animal sacrifice, but the sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving. Did you know that? And I haven't got to the real secret yet. But we're offered to offer up our thanks and our praise and our thanksgiving. Our thanks for Jesus' uniquely saving sacrifice. His life-giving sacrifice of himself. Our English word for Eucharist comes from a Greek word which means thanksgiving. So to celebrate the Eucharist is to give thanks. So here's the secret that some of you have known, and you'll pick up on it today when we celebrate the Mass later, because you'll pick up on it in the language of the prayers. At every Eucharist, you and I are invited to offer our very selves to God. This is highlighted in the language of the prayer book. That we are invited every Sunday to offer our entire life to God. All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all of our pain, all of our hurt, the things we don't know how to fix, the things that we don't understand. We're offered, invited to offer it to God on the altar. And this is really highlighted strongly by the language of prayer, the right one prayer language. Listen. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. It's right there. It's been there for centuries. We're offering our whole selves to God. At least we're invited to do so every time we come to this place on a Sunday. So do you know that what we do in worship, we're invited to do every day? A disciple... A serious Christian is a person who's striving to offer themselves and everything in their life, good and bad, to God. A disciple is a person who strives to give thanks, to be a person who is known for giving thanks, be a person of gratitude. Are you that kind of human being? Are you that kind of disciple? Am I? The Eucharist is a profound mystery. It is a central act of our worship. It is something you and I cannot do on our own. We can only celebrate this great sacrament together. This is a flashing red light reminder of a most crucial spiritual principle. Whether you're 5, 55, 95, whatever your age, this is a crucial spiritual principle. I often forget it. Our society forgets it. Maybe you've forgotten it. Here it is. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. But you can only live the fullness of life. You can only see things spiritually clearly in life by living in community with others. The power of the Eucharist, the mystery of the Eucharist, the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is effective every time we celebrate this great sacrament. Whether there's just two or three people gathered together in Jesus' name on a little Wednesday service, Or whether there are hundreds of people gathered together in Jesus' name at a great cathedral on a Sunday. So lift up your hearts, give thanks, offer your life to God. Whatever is hurting you today, whatever you're afraid of today, whatever you're grateful for today, lift that up when you come to the altar to receive. Give yourself to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.